The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Here this morning. Father, we're thankful for the fact that uh, you um, have committed all judgment to your Son, and your Son indeed judges not by sight, not by just what a person can perceive on the outside, but he judges with all the information and all the facts, with things that are uh, beyond just what we would be able to know of ourselves. We're thankful for that as he uh, will exercise judgment. And it's real easy for us to look at your word sometimes and we think that judgment seems a little bit heavy-handed in some situations. But we realize that uh, oftentimes we don't have all the information and we have a very limited perspective. And uh, so we're thankful as you put things together, uh, um, even as we were reminded in the first hour this morning, that there is a lot of things, a lot of tradition, a lot of tradition from the world, a lot of tradition even from uh, the influence of uh, churchianity uh, in the way that we've done things over the years, the way we've read things, um, that affects the way we uh, understand the world and understand the function of the church and all of these things. And as we continue looking at this study, we might appreciate more and more uh, your plan and design for us, recognize that there are some things that are different from the way we perhaps have traditionally seen things and that it might be helpful to us as we function together. And we thank you for all of this then and thankful that your spirit who bore these men along to to write these things down carefully and accurately, that he also uh, dwells in us and is able to help us uh, not only to understand or to see the things that are there, but to, to see the value in those truths. And we thank you for this then. Amen. So um, as we continue on in our study on church dynamics and the section we're dealing with right now um, overlaps with the study that uh, we're doing in the, uh, went over, started today, and it's got at least another week on it in the adult class on the role of women. We're going to be moving, we've, we've, well, what we've looked in the Old Testament so far is we've seen that women actually had surprisingly bigger roles in some Old Testament situations than I ever heard, I, for some reason, we didn't really talk about those. I remember being, talking about Deborah, the judge, but I don't know that we ever talked about what that meant for Deborah to be the judge, that we ever read through that uh, growing up in Sunday school and such. And we saw that God had prophets, women prophets that served in, in a variety of ways, and we uh, looked at that. And then we uh, looked last week at the fact that Jesus interacted with women, and we saw that they actually have a surprisingly big role in, in his ministry. One thing I neglected to point out last week is that there were women that followed Jesus and his disciples. And we, I, I, I studied through those verses. We didn't bring them out last week. But the women, interestingly enough, just to point this out, the women were never called disciples. Only men were called disciples when Jesus was walking the earth. Though there were women that followed and women that learned, they are always distinguished from the disciples. And when I say disciples, I'm not even talking about the 12. Because remember, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. When you come to John 6, there was a large number of disciples that were following Jesus. The day before, when those disciples had been with Jesus, it said that he'd fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So there were women and children that were present there too. And a large junk, chunk of those were disciples. So just trying to had something that I kind of neglected to bring out last week or point that out. But we're going to look today at women in the church. We're going to actually be moving specifically now into looking at the role that women have in the church. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up, women taught kids Sunday school classes and they oversaw potlucks and they determined who was going to clean church. And I'm probably... And, I, I, you know, and in the church I grew up in, that was not true. The church I spent most of my time in as a kid... Um, one of the ladies in the church was, um, I don't know if, I think we called her treasurer, and I think my mom was clerk, or the other way around. I think she was treasurer and my mom was clerk. I think that's the way it was. Uh, and I might have those two backwards the way they did that. I know my mom wasn't treasurer, though. Uh, she, wasn't, she didn't ever write checks. But I remember them coming over to our house, sitting in the kitchen, around the kitchen table at the end of the year, getting ready for the end of the year 
meeting or our, our annual meeting and having to go over all the bookwork to make sure everything was square so that everybody could see exactly what had gone on that year and all those things. So, I mean, we, we did have that, don't get me wrong, in those. Um, I think that that church, in many ways, well, in my opinion growing up, that church functioned, as, uh, by my experience, better than other churches that I had been a part of at different times. Uh, and I, you've probably heard me share about that, and that's enough. But we want to look at some different scriptures, and we'll move through some of these, hopefully with a little speed. But turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We want to see that when Jesus sends his disciples back into town, after they follow him out to the mountain, and he's caught up uh, into the clouds, we come into um, uh, Acts chapter 1, and then let's go to verse 12. Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from a mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And we don't know this, but a lot of people speculated that this is the upper room that they uh, meet in John uh, uh, chapters uh, 13 through 17. Uh, where they were staying, that is Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So we have, it says very plainly here in verse 14, along with the women. And if you go to verse 15, it says, And at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers, a gathering of about 120 persons. So when you're looking at this, I think it's important for us to realize that it's not just the 11 disciples that are up there. It's the 11 disciples and others, but among them, Luke brings out here in Acts, and among them were the women. And there's about 120 people total. So how many of those were women? I don't know. But if you went and looked at what we saw at the end of our study last week, when we were looking at the women that saw him resurrected, the Mary and the other Mary and then the other Mary, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but you're surprised by how many Marys you run into. And I think I've asked you this question. Does anybody know why Mary was such a popular name? You ever wondered that question? We read about one this morning. Miriam. Yeah. That was the way they pronounced Miriam, the, the, the sister of Moses. That's the way her name was pronounced at that time, the way they, they pronounced it. So this is what was going on. But we have women here that are waiting in Jerusalem for what he's going to say is the promise of the Holy Spirit. I didn't bring this out, but when we get down into Acts chapter 2, and this, is, this was something I did not put in the notes. It says, let's go to verse 1. And it says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. You and I probably, we have to maybe go someplace else to figure out what a violent rushing wind sounds like. <laughs> okay, you guys all got that humor. See, yeah, that's right. We know that. Hey, the, I tell you, it was blowing the other night. We were laying in bed and I turned to Peg because we both, and I said, this is one of those times when that wind is roaring out there. You really are thankful that God allows us to have a nice, warm, sturdy house. I imagine what that must have been like for people that lived out in the deserts over there in the Middle East and they lived in tents. Can you imagine the wind rattling those canvases or, or so, a lot of times those tents were made out of animal skins, but listen to that rattle and vibrate all night long. Anyway, violent rushing wind. Back on track. Here we go. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3, And there appeared to them tongues like a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all, notice this, they were all filled. Now, it, what's that, that adjective in there? All filled. There are people, I've listened to some of them teach this. I've read this. There's a question and a debate. Does that all include all 120 in the upper room or only the 12? And when I say 12, because remember, they, they vote on replacing Judas with somebody else. I think it's all. I think all 120 of these people that are in this upper room, that the Holy Spirit falls on all of them. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Meaning the men and women, all 120 in that upper room, they all receive the Holy Spirit, and they all go out. Uh, 
they begin speaking outside. They're not just doing it in that upper room. They actually go out through the city of Jerusalem so that other people are hearing them. And that's the whole thing that kind of starts the push for all these people to come together and go, what, what are we hearing? What is this? And that. But I, I believe that the women were involved also in this. And uh, I don't think, you may disagree with me, and I don't think we're going to actually, we could arm wrestle all day long, and you probably beat me at that, but you're not going to convince me at this moment, because I've listened to people give arguments, and I don't see a good argument for just trying to limit this only to the 12 disciples. Uh, so there, there we go with that. But we have uh, that uh, this was taking place. I want you to look with me in, uh, let's go to Acts chapter 5. Yes. That's on on air, so that's males, and and that is an important thing just to kind of clarify because when it's talking when it's talking about that, all the men, the males in of that were Jews were supposed to travel from wherever they lived to Jerusalem for three feasts in a year. <coughs> they had a feast at before harvest, or, or excuse me, before their their season started, and then two feasts that happened after the harvest. And they were all expected to travel to Jerusalem. And by the way, that's even going to happen in the future because the book of Zechariah says all nations, not just the Jews, but all nations will have to come to Jerusalem. And any nation that refuses to come to Jerusalem, God will withhold rain from that nation. You know what that's going to force them to do? Go to Jerusalem because that's where all the grain, all the food that they're raising will all be collected there. You don't get to keep it. Yeah, in your grain bin at home. You've got to take it there, and it's kept there. So it's going to force you to go to Jerusalem to be able to get something. You're going to put them in that situation. That's in Zechariah 14 if you want to look at that on your own. So let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 now, and let's look at verse 14. And this is right after the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, which we could look at that. That's an interesting thing. Both of them are guilty of this. It's not just that the husband's held responsible for this. The wife is too. And it says in verse 14, however, after that's done, you think that this would scare everybody off. And it does. Because it says in verse 13, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. In other words, one of the things that that death of those two people did was it kept non-believers away from the church for a period of time. It kept them out. Other Because for a while, apparently, other people were coming into the church because it's like, well, this is really cool what's going on. I'd like to, it's kind of like Sean McDowell says, people come to church, they want to be Christians because they want to be part of something cool. Well, the minute two people die because they lie, everybody's like, okay, I don't need to be a part of that. And they all back off. And that's what Luke tells us here. They quit doing that. By the way, that's God's doing because that's the nature of the church. That's a hard thing for Christians to wrap their minds around. Modern church today is all about trying to get people in the door saved or unsaved. And God said, no, this a gathering is for the family. The, you reach the unsaved out there in the world. And I know we say that a lot here, but I just think that's really important for us to understand. Anyway, that's again, that's an aside. I'm getting off topic. Let's stay on here. Verse 14, and all the more, but despite that, despite the fact that this is kind of scared these other people off, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women. You see that there in verse 14? Men and women. And there we have two gender terms. We have the, the gender term on air for men and the word gunaike for the women. And so we have both of these words here. Men and women were, were regularly then being added. It's not just that they were added one time, maybe another time. It's being written in the Greek in such a way as to say it was continuing to take place. They continue to come into the church, continue to be added in this. But it notes, it tells us there in the first part of this, it says that they were the ones who were believing. So it's not just anybody's coming to church. These are the ones that are believing in this context. Turn with me to chapter 8, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. This is Philip that goes up to during the persecution, he ends up in Samaria, and it says, And when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. Notice what it says, men and women both. Or some of your Bibles have a light. 
Do you think maybe there's something that God's having Luke try to communicate to us? Very important. In fact, one of the things when you read the book, of the gospel of Luke, that a lot of, lot of teachers notice is Luke has, even in his gospel, a big emphasis on women in the life of Jesus. It's not that you don't see it in the other gospels, but Luke really brings that out. He also brings out a lot of emphasis on Jesus connecting with Gentiles, which wasn't his ministry. But the reason I say those things is Luke, I think is he, he's kind of been, he's been a, a fellow traveler with Paul through a lot of Paul's ministry. He knows what Paul's teaching. And as the Holy Spirit's bearing Luke along, he's causing Luke to see God was not making some of the distinctions that you have been accustomed to making. We want to make God's distinctions, right? But sometimes we make distinctions that God has not made. Okay. And that's he's bearing Luke along to, to, to do this. Let's turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. We were talking about women running businesses today in the adult class a little bit. Uh, and uh, the, the Philippians 31 woman, and if you come to Acts chapter 16, uh, we have in, uh, let's go back up to verse 13 here to start. Acts 16, verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. The reason for that was, is if a city didn't have 10 men, they, didn't, they couldn't have a synagogue. You had to have 10 males to have a synagogue. That was Jewish God didn't set that down. That was Jewish rule. And so when there wasn't a synagogue, then the Jews that were present would go out by a river. They would just try to find a body of water with moving water, not a lake, and they would go out there for their prayer time on Sabbath. So this is why it tells us this. And we sat down and began speaking, notice this, to the women who had assembled there. It doesn't even say there's men assembled. There's talking to the women that are out there. And there was a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. That's over in Asia Minor, Okay. That's not over in Macedonia where they are. She's a seller of purple fabric. That meant she was a good business, okay? She's not selling Kmart clothes. That's, it's, I think there's three Kmarts left, so, but she's not selling Kmart clothes. Nothing wrong with Kmart clothes. I had some Kmart clothes growing up, but she's selling more of a high-end clothes, okay? Because that's what a seller of purple was, a worshiper of God. And she was listening, to the, listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Verse 15, we'll, refer, we'll just refer back to this if we read it now. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, we have in the, in the English, we have a, a conditional, if you have judged me faithful, but in the Greek, it's since you've judged me faithful. She assumes you've judged me to be faithful in this, which means she, they'd spent enough time around her that they could actually, she, she was dependable in what they were doing here uh, to the Lord. Come into my house, and she prevailed upon them. And as a result, Paul and his traveling companions, which is Paul and Timothy and Silas and, and Luke. And the reason we know Luke is in there, because the book of Acts, the account goes from, and they, and they, and they, to, and we, and we, and we. You can kind of tell where Luke is in the story, because he always includes himself in the we sections. And then he disappears at times when he's not with them. Anyway, but here Lydia actually puts these guys up, which is to me is a very interesting story. But she's the first; she's considered to be the first believer in um, yeah, in uh, Macedonia. Let's go to Acts chapter seventeen. Acts chapter seventeen. This is also in Macedonia. In Acts seventeen, in verse four, when Paul uh, arrives in Thessalonica, if we go down to to verse. Four, and they've been preaching about Jesus and they're preaching in the synagogue, but it says in verse four, and some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Leading women meant not, well, they're, they're prominent women. They're women that ran businesses. They're women that were important that other people looked up to in the community. We just watched a couple weeks ago, Pollyanna, the old one with Haley Mills. If you haven't watched it, you need to go back and watch it. It's a fun movie to watch. And, but, but in that thing, her aunt that she goes to stay with, because her parents are missionaries and they die, and so she goes to stay with her aunt. Her aunt is one of these people that's position of privilege. And she kind of sees like that. Like, I'm kind of above everybody. I need to set a tone for everybody in the community. You know, like, well, this is prominent, prominent women, okay? Probably not Pollyanna quite prominent, but you get the idea, okay? 
And it says, but there were a number of these women that were here involved in this. And the same thing's repeated when they get to Berea and even down in Athens you have not only some people that hear him on Mars Hill and believe, but also there's some women that had heard what Paul had been preaching in the city and they joined to him. Not from the Mars Hill thing, but because the women were not allowed. The <coughs> Greeks didn't allow the women to participate with the philosophers. Because I didn't add this to... I didn't add this to what uh, Carmen was saying when she was quoting those different people, but it was considered by a lot of those cultures over there that women, like the thing women don't lack wisdom, that women lack knowledge, and they were too foolish. They were too silly. They actually used the word, well, words that we translate in English, silly. They thought women were too silly-headed to actually be involved in making serious decisions and choices like that. And so women were not, didn't participate in with the philosophers even within Greece, okay? Christianity changes this. Now women can be philosophers. No, it doesn't, because the Christian church doesn't uh, encourage philosophy anyway. Along with that, we also have some other women that participate in these things, and uh, we're not going to go over and, and look at this first one, but if, in 1 Corinthians 9, we're told that Peter takes along a wife, calls her a sister wife, which I still remember teaching a Bible study years ago, and somebody, in the, uh, there was a lady in the study, goes, what? He was married to his sister? And I said, no, she was a sister in the Lord. Oh, <laughs> a little bit of relief there. But he took along his wife. Church history outside of Scripture says they also took along their daughter, that Peter and his wife had one child, they had one daughter, and she also traveled with them. And the point being in that context was that people cared for them. People provided for Peter and his wife to travel so that they had money to, to eat on and, and where, wherever they went. And they took care of them. They didn't say, well, we're taking care of Peter. She's got to take care of herself. They didn't do that. They provided for both. Both. I want to go look at Dorcas. I always like this gal. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. And I think it's so funny. And I think it's because we use the word dork. But when I was growing up, you know, if a person was kind of, hmm, you say, oh, what a, you're what a Dorcas, like that. And, it, and then I didn't even know, I think, when we used to use that growing up. Did anybody else ever use that expression? My wife's nodding her head. She did. Um, but uh, I didn't even know there was a woman called Dorcas. I don't know how I had gone through church and they didn't know about this gal. But uh, um, Acts chapter 9, look at me at verse... Um, 36, now in Joppa there was a certain, now notice it calls her a disciple. Now this is different than in the Gospels, because when you get to the book of Acts, if you're a believer, you were designated a disciple. In the, in the Gospels, you could be a disciple without being a believer. And it's very clear that that was the case in the Gospels. But nobody has ever called a disciple in the book of Acts. It's not a believer, unless it specifically says, well, they're a disciple of this group of people or a disciple of that individual. But otherwise, if they're designated, it's, a, it's another way they describe them as believers. And her name was Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman, notice what it says here in verse 36, was abounding in, in works of kindness and goodness, or good works, and, and she's doing mercy gifts here, which she continually was doing. And it came about at time that she fell sick and died. Now, we, you'd go, what, what is this acts of kindness and charity? Well, let's see what happens. When she died, they washed her body, they laid it in an upper room, and since Lida was near Joppa, it's fun saying those names. Poor Linda today, uh, had she got stuck with the verse that had the whole bunch of names that were hard to say. And I was thinking, oh, Stan just had a bunch of verses to read. Linda had to do with all those, those crazy names. Anyway, okay, back to the main point. I'm sorry, Tim's like a dog chasing squirrels here. Verse 38, And since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay, come to us. Peter arose, went with them, and when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and notice, and the widows then stood around him weeping, showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. I got to hear the word tunic yesterday because Peggy and Emily were talking about women's clothing and they've got these, these long shirts that women wear now under with certain things and they call them tunics. But the thing is, everybody in their culture wore tunics. They were long, I've probably shown you this first, but they were like long t-shirts. They could have, most of them had long sleeves, they also made short sleeve ones, and they came down to your knees or a little bit before. And when it was hot and you were working, you know what you did? You took your big outer robe off and you laid it on the fence and you walked, you finished 
doing your, your work trimming, pruning, whatever you're doing out there in the field, and you did it in your tunic because it was cooler, but it protected you from the beat of the sunlight on your skin. And so this, so I think this is really cool. She's not making these people, she's not making the ladies fine dresses to wear and suits for the men to wear to church. I always think it was really funny when I was growing up. You know, we were all expected to dress a certain way when you come to church, right? Men had to have ties on, probably put on a sports coat or thing. If you would have showed up on a Sunday morning in a pair of jeans, people would have looked at you and go, are you sure you're going to heaven? I think we need to sit down and talk about the guy. No, I, it wasn't that bad, but it was almost that bad, you know, as a kid. She's making practical clothes to these people. To me, that's the thing that's amazing here. She's making practical clothing. She's making these shirts that everybody wears. They wear them if they're going someplace nice, but they also wore them for work. That's what a tunic was. And so, so she's making tunics and garments. There's other garments that she's also making for them. And she used to make while she was with them. That's, that's the acts of kindness and mercy gifts. She's taking her wherewithal to make clothing for the people. Doesn't say it's her business. She's doing this as provision for the other believers. And of course, if we read this, Peter sent them all out, knelt down, prayed, and turning to, to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her to her. And it came known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And then he stayed there. She's raised back to life. But to me, it's interesting. She's somebody that's noted among these believers because she was very generous in providing these people something very practical in terms of clothing. Think about one of the most practical things we can help people with, right? Is reasonable clothing uh, in situations. And I think of other scriptures that would relate to that. Okay, so now from this point on, we're going to go to Romans 16 for a while. And we're going to sit over in Romans 16 because we have a huge list of people in Romans 16. And some of these people, we're actually going to skip over the first one. She's in verse 1. Her name's Phoebe. We're saving her because we're going to come back to Phoebe in, uh, in a couple weeks. Because she has a very interesting role and our English Bibles and the way people teach this does a lot to make Phoebe's role not seem as important as it actually is. But we'll come back and deal with that at another time. The first one we have is we're going we're gonna to put in, well, let's hit verse 3. It says, greet Prisca and Aquila. We're going to come back to those two. We're not going to hit them right now. Again, that also is, is kind of, uh, well, no, I guess I do have them listed up here, don't I? I do. Um, they are the first ones I have on my slide, I've, I've, or not the first one. They're down there a ways, but the first one in this section. So, But they're co-workers. Paul looks at Prisca. Some of us know us as Priscilla. Okay, My name's actually Timothy. You guys didn't know that. Don't call me that. Only my mom and my grandma can do that. Uh, but uh, Tim, that's what I go by, and never Timmy. She was Priscilla, but they also referred to her as Prisca. Okay was the way that she was called. But she ministers with her husband. So greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. Notice what that says in verse 4, who for my life risked their own necks. <laughs> what was that all about? He doesn't even tell us. He just kind of makes this passing statement that they did something that actually put them in jeopardy, but they did it for the sake of Paul, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the church of the Gentile. And verse 5, and greet the church that's in their house. Again, we've got these convenient buildings we meet in. In their day, across Rome, the size of Rome and the number of people that were there and probably the number of believers, the evidence as we go through this is that there's probably three or four different churches that are meeting around Rome and people that had houses that were apparently big enough to accommodate people, they accommodated them. And Prisca and Aquila, they hosted a church in their house. Okay, this is what they're doing. They're hosting a church in their house. And then it goes in verse 6. And greet Mary, who also has worked hard or labored hard, it says, on your behalf. We don't know what that means. Does that mean that she was from Rome and she'd come and help? Doesn't tell us, but it does tell us she worked hard. She had done some labor. And that word labor, kapiao, it's not the word ergo, which would be work. It's kapiao, which means labor. You're sweating a little bit. You kind of, when you're done, you're kind of, whew, let me catch my breath. It's, it's, gonna, it's, it's some work. 
And so it's using this term in terms of what she's doing. It doesn't tell us what she's doing, but we do find uh, uh, out about her that she actually is, is doing something here. Um, let's go down to verse uh, 7. The next one says, Greet Andronicus and Unius. Now, Andronicus is a masculine name. Unius is a feminine name uh, in this. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are, we're going to come back to this at the end and deal with this a little bit, but they're outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. I'm going to come back and address that a little bit later. But there's two ways of understanding there what it means by outstanding among the apostles. Some of them said they were well known to the apostles. The apostles were like, oh yeah, Andronicus and Unius, we know them. And that could maybe have been. But the other way to understand it, it's the way I, when I first read it, this is the way I always have seen the passage. Andronicus and Unius, outstanding apostles. Now the problem that some Christians have with that is they go, well, no, there's only 12 apostles. That's 10. Let's got to add two more. There's 12 apostles, but that's not true. Because the book of Ephesians tells us that Christ gave the gift of apostle. He gave people as apostles, as well as prophets, as well as evangelists, as well as shepherd teachers. He's giving these gifts. And those are not until he ascends on high and sends the Spirit and is directing the giving of these gifts to individuals at times. And that's Ephesians 4. So there are apostles broader than the twelve. They have a different kind of apostleship because it's not a commissioning apostleship. It's an apostleship by gifting. And the question then is, were there women that ever received a gift of apostleship? This is the only one that would be mentioned, but it's enough to really pique our interest. And in. we'll just come back and we'll catch a couple things on that before we're done um, on this. But we have these two. Let's go on and read here what it says, and my fellow prisoners. So both this man and woman, this man and wife, this is what we assume them to be because they're put together like this, um, that they'd actually done some jail time, like Paul, which would mean that they've done so for the cause of Christ, not because they had you know, a whole bunch of speeding tickets or something like that or had been robbing banks. No, they're doing prison time for the faith for the testimony of Jesus Christ uh, in this uh, relationship that they had. Um, let's go down to verse 12. It says, greet Tryphenia and Trephosa. Those are sisters, we think. Workers in the Lord. So he looks at these two and he says, these two, apparently these two sisters were workers in the Lord. Have you ever known anybody like that? You ever known believing sisters? Apparently single, <laughs> they continue carrying out work together, they live together, they carry on ministry together. This is what's happening here. And then greet Persis. Has anybody ever known a woman named Persis? I'm just kind of curious. I, I, I did know a lady named Persis when I was growing up for a couple of years. But she also, she's the beloved, and she has, notice what it says there in verse 12, she has labored much or worked hard, our Bibles, Bibles say. But that word again for the sisters and for Persis, it's that same word, kapiao. It means she's really working hard. She's laboring. She's not just doing something easy. Now, I don't know what that means. Are they providing food? Were they like Tabitha or Dorcas making clothing? That'd be a lot of work, I would say. That'd be a labor. Could be that. My wife cooks. A lot, lot of us cook around here and you cook for other people. You cook for Wednesday nights or for Sunday and different things when we get together. And my opinion is, when I watch her cook, it's work. Would you say it's work? It's work. I'm always trying to come up with easy things. Hey, let's just get this, throw it in the oven. She's going, no, we can make something. <laughs> just buy a Stouffer's lasagna. No, we'll make something. <laughs> That's right. But I'm, but I'm always thinking, because it's work. It's labor. And I'm not trying to steal work or labor from her <clears throat> as an opportunity. But I just realize she has other things sometimes to do than just to be cooking like that for church. So you all can relate to that. that this could be what they're doing. But I think it's bigger than this. It's, it's easy for us to look at what do women do in churches today? Well, they fix food for potlucks and stuff like that. But 
I just think in light of the New Testament, I think that there's probably a lot of other things that these women could potentially have been doing when it says that they're laboring in the Lord. He doesn't tell us specifically exactly what the nature of all of that work is. Um, I'm not keeping up. Um, let's look at this next lady. Just kind of makes a passing statement. Verse 13, greet Rufus. That's a guy, obviously. Uh, a choice man in the Lord. Also, his mother and mine. And I, I think when you, when you read that expression, I think most of us probably get it. But he's not saying that we're literally bro physical, biological brothers or ha even half-brothers. I think what he's saying is, you know what? His mom basically taking me under her, under her wing. She treats me like her son. I had a really, really good friend when I was growing up, and his mom, I don't know that she ever would have considered me her son, but I looked at her sometimes as my mom. You know, she was my mom when I was away from my mom, the way that she, she functioned like that. And that's what Paul is saying here about Rufus. It's nice to have that person that is encouraging and uh, helpful in that. Look down in verse 15 here. Greek philologus, philologus, and Jew and Julia, uh, Neris and his sister. So we've got two women in here, and then a, th or a third one, and then and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So he doesn't tell us what these people are doing, but he mentions Philolus and Julia. We think that that's a husband and wife because of the way they're put there. And then Neris, and he doesn't just say Neris and then his sister's name, but he says Neris and his sister. So they apparently are hosting this. And then Olympus. And he's looking at their a group of people with some other people that are meeting somewhere in Rome. And so he mentions right there in that verse, we have three more ladies that are mentioned. Doesn't tell us what they're doing other than they're apparently involved in hosting and helping with a church meeting. And think about that. I mean, when, when, you, when those of you open your homes to have us come in for Bible studies like that, get-togethers, is you just you just open the door and say, ah, just come on, kick the shoes out of the way, clear the counter off. I'm sorry, all my work's all <laughs> No. Usually when I show up at your house, if you're expecting people, you've straightened things up, you've cleaned it up, you've you've made it welcoming and and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Inviting, welcoming, inviting, and such for somebody to come in and uh, and uh, sit down and enjoy time spending spending time with you, and uh, I and I don't know. I'm making assumptions based on our modern world uh, and the way we do things like that. Uh, so, but anyway, we have these we have all these different women that are mentioned here. Turn with me over now over to Colossians, Colossians chapter four. Without without even before we look at the rest of them, are, I'm just. Show of hands, how many of you were surprised at how many women were listed in there that you were like, you didn't realize that there were all those women listed in that list? Yeah, see, because you know what happens? I remember going being in a Bible study before we lived out here that uh, um, one of the teachers at our church led, and he, he was going through that list, and he says, we're going to go through this list tonight. He says, something we, you know, we, we read through real fast because it's not doctrinal, it's not important. He says, but I think it is really important because there's all these little, little bits of things that are said that it doesn't take you a whole Bible study to suss out every one of them, but in a study you kind of point out some of those things that's helpful. How do you know on some of them it's male or female? Because there's no rhyme or reason. At first I thought well, it was an S and an A, but that's not true. Because we know with most of them you can tell which ones are masculine gender in Greek and which ones are feminine in gender. The only one in there is the unia. Because there, there is a couple of Greek manuscripts that have a masculine version of Munia. Okay. But most of them favor the fact that it's a, that it's a feminine form. Because so for the most part of it is a, it's, it's a feminine. Usually, because usually... Yeah. So that's a, a masculine end of the name. Right. Right, yes, because the sigma, the Omicron sigma is the masculine ending normally, yeah, to tell you what it is. So one of the things is, you guys would be surprised, when you look at the name Jesus, Jesus is an indeclinable name in Greek. It's all, it almost always has exactly the same form no matter where you go. Whereas Christ declines, it changes its ending depending on what you're saying in a sentence. Uh, that's 
a little Greek for those of you that don't mind. Um, let's go over here to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to look in verse 15. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. I've got to look at my notes on these or I would not remember exactly what verses we're in. But it says, Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And we have, here's it easy to know, her house because it's a feminine pronoun in the Greek. It's, uh, so she is, again, she's hosting a, a church in Laodicea. Laodicea is not Colossae. It's a nearby town, closer than Othello and Royal City, just to understand that. They say Nympha and the church that is in his house? That's yeah. what mine says. Oh. Oh, mine says her. Um, I've her, but... I, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I'm, it could be the choice of the translators at that time, or it could be that the Greek text behind theirs. So I will get back to you on that, Ben, and check that, and well, I'll actually, try... Actually, mine has a correction. It says his with a little asterisk, and if you go down, it reads her house. Uh, okay. So they, Okay. Yeah. Okay. There you go. There's a note to Romans 16.5 on that, and it says 16.5, uh, the church that is in their house, early congregations met in homes. The several house churches in one city would constitute the church in that city. But it says there in 16.5. Right, because you're talking about um, Priscilla and Aquila as a couple, and they're hosting church in their home. Whereas here, yeah, we definitely have a feminine, it's a feminine name, but it's also a feminine pronoun in Greek. Uh, so, just like you have a translate. Let's flip over to Philemon. We don't go to Philemon very often, but we're going to go to Philemon. And again, we know that this is a woman, because she's called, not only do we have a feminine name, but it's also called Sister. And it says, uh, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister. Now, not everybody agrees on this, but a lot of people think because it's Philemon and then Apphia that they believe Apphia is his wife. And then Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that is in your house. But he says here, Apphia and Philemon apparently were hosting this house or hosting this church in their home, but it says Apphia was our sister. And he says, greet her. Greet this sister in there. Um, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. To me, this was an interesting one coming across when I was working on this study. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you remember, when you read 2 Timothy, Paul's, this is Paul's swan song. This is Paul's closing letter. He's going to die not too long. He's going to be executed, we should say. Not too long after he finishes writing this letter. So you could imagine, you're, you're on death row. You're waiting your sentence to, to be carried out. And you're thinking there's probably a lot of people that don't want anything to do with you. In fact, in this letter, he says, all those in Asia have abandoned me. I mean, apparently all the Asians that were over there in Rome, none of them wanted to come see Paul. Who wants to go see the jailbird that's going to die? But in the midst of this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, look down at the end of this. Um, and he's talking about that the Lord has stood with him in the past and such. But then he says... Um, in uh, verse uh, 21, uh, 2 Timothy 4:21, make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Now it's really interesting that he mentions these people because what he's saying is there are some believers that are sticking it out with me. There are some believers that are still not afraid to visit me in prison, to come and check on me to spend some time with me. Others have abandoned me. They don't want anything to do with me now because they don't want to end up as jailbirds either. But among those, we have Claudia listed, which again is a feminine name. And so she's, she's listed among those people that actually took time to be with Paul, even on death row. Verse 19, you have Priscilla and over oh, right, 19, in the household of Onesiphorus. Yeah, they're listed among there. Yeah, I was, I was kind of blissing past them because we're going to come back to them in a future study. 
We've got two last ladies we want to deal with, and then we're going to kind of have some uh, uh, just a quick clothing, share some clothing, uh, closing comments. But go to Philippians chapter three, chapter four. Pardon me. Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, and uh, let's go to verse two. It says, "I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche." to live in harmony with one another, or the Greek is to have the same frame of mind. We talk a lot here about the frame of mind. Have the same frame of mind. And then he says, in, indeed, he says, I ask you true comrade or true genuine yoke fellow. So somebody that carries a yoke. Everybody knows, you know, a yoke, you put it on the back of an ox or beast of burden to pull a plow or another implement. But he says, you're not pulling this alone. He says, you are one that you've pulled the plow with me. We've done this together. That's why he uses this word comrade or yoke fellow. I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle. In other words, and that word shared in the struggle, he uses that one other time in the book of Philippians. It's the only other time this word is used. And it's in chapter one where he says, I'm encouraging you all to work in one soul as a team. It's the Greek verb athleo with the preposition soon, soon athleo. Athleo would just be to compete as an athlete. Soon athleo is to compete as an athlete together. That implies that it's a team sport, not an individual sport. Right? Aram's out for, cross, uh, not cross country this time of year, track, right? And when you run in cross country, it's a, you're going to be running primarily or participating in individual sports, right? In track. Individual sports, all right? You're not going to be, it won't be, uh, are you doing any team, any medleys? Or, yeah, see. So he's going to do that as a, so it's him. You know, I, I wasn't fast enough to run a mile in track. So I would, I would do a, a quarter, you know. And that's back when you did quarters, 440s, you know, before they did 400s and you had, so there was teamwork, you know, you had to pass off the baton to the person. You had to have a smooth transition in there because, man, if you're making good time and you botch that transition, that handoff of the baton, it slows the whole thing down and everybody's like, oh, don't mess that up. I'm just using this as an example, teamwork, working together. And he says, these ladies have worked together. They have worked together as a team with me, as well as with Clements and the rest of those co my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So here's two ladies. Apparently they're having problems right now getting along, but he says, you know, but they have worked together. They've been team members and they've worked together like a team and it was good. It's one of the things that, you know, I always pray for us here as well as other believers that we meet with or get together with, that we work together like a team. The body of Christ is not an individual event. <laughs> it's a teamwork event, and he encourages these people to do this. Now, I'm going to come down here to this last question I have here and take just a couple minutes. And this is going back to this question, were Uni was Unia mentioned as notable among the apostles? I'm just going to share a couple pieces. I'm not going to make a big case for this. I already kind of said that in passing. Christ gave gifts. I don't have any reason to believe he did not give some women the gift of apostle. But John Chrysostom, 4th century. He's not an authority. He's just an ancient writer. Spoke a lot. Okay, did a lot of Bible teaching. And it says, indeed, how great is the devotion of this woman that she should be counted worthy of the appellation apostle. Notice this. He says, she's called an apostle. That's the way he understood this in the, in the fourth century. William Newell. Now, some of you guys don't know who William Newell is, but William Newell has written from a doctrinal and theological point of view probably one of the best commentaries on Romans you can acquire. You can get them. I think it's out of copyright now, so you can even get it copyright-free, downloaded on your computer if you want. But in 1938, William Newell wrote... He refers to her as having the apostolic gift, though not among the 12. See, he makes a distinction. She's got the gift, but she's not part of the 12, which we don't have a problem with that. And that's from his commentary on Romans, page 552, if you want to go look at that. At least the old edition, <laughs> that like I have. If you go on and read that, Newell has a really long footnote on this whole thing where he talks about the role of women in the church as God formed the body of Christ, that this new thing with a new relationship to the Godhead. 
and he's changed the status of women. And he goes on that. He does, he does recognize some biblical limitations, but he sees women as having much greater authority and realm of service than was acknowledged in a lot of the churches that Newell participated in. Uh, I'm not for sure, but I think... I'm going to stick my neck out, and I might be wrong in this, but I kind of think Newell did some teaching at Moody Bible Institute back in its old, old days. I might be wrong in that, but I, it's been a while since I've read about William Newell himself. But uh, to me, that was very interesting. Anyway, all of this study, maybe this seems a little tedious, but I, the whole purpose is just to go through and for us to open the Bible and go through and look at the... I could have stood up and said, oh, yeah, there, look at all these ladies that are mentioned in the Bible. But for me... When I was doing this study, and I did this study over a year ago for myself, and now I decided I wanted to share this with you when we were going to work on some things with the church, that I was surprised at how often you find God actually having roles bigger, different than what I often was raised thinking women had in the church. <clears throat> and uh, I hope that just encourages you to... Be willing to say, okay, the church says this, but what does the Bible actually say? And I think like going through Romans 16 is a good example of the fact that there were a lot of women that had clearly, I mean, they're significant enough that Paul mentions them by name. And I don't know how many churches there were. I didn't count, but I think there were at least four places or at least three or four places and he mentioned that there were churches meeting and I don't know how big those were. Let's say in Rome, let's say they got 400 believers, 100 believers meeting in each group. I don't know. That might be generous. Might be small. But among those people, Paul mentions some of these ladies by name, and not only by name, but also names what they have done or what they're noted for in this. And I think that that's something important to help us think carefully about the role that women have not only in the, the church as the Bible lays it out, but as we do church. Even if it means it has to challenge. I, I can guarantee you, my perspective on this has changed. Not by reading books. There's a guy I like to listen to on, online. I really do like to listen to him. But I'm not saying he didn't study the Bible, but he spent a lot of time reading a lot of writers. He showed all the books one day he was reading. And... I didn't do a lot of that. I spent a lot of time going through these scriptures and working on them and looking at context where, it was, where that helped. And hopefully this is helping you just to think about this matter on this. And hopefully you don't kick me out <laughs> on some of these things. Anyway, that's, that's a joke. Hopefully, it's just a joke. Anyway, Father, we're thankful for your word and the fact that... Uh, for some people, that might seem kind of just tedious for us to go through and read all those verses and look at all those things that are said, but that's the way you teach us truth is by us actually being in your word and reading it for ourselves. And uh, we can spend all day reading other books on it, but in the end, we really have to come back to the book because that's what you had to say. And we have to allow your spirit to help us to see what's just sometimes just plainly written there on the page. And we're thankful for that. Thankful for this time and for the kind attention of these people. And thankful for that in the body of Christ, you indeed see us all as one. And we thank you for this then. Amen.